All right, quick. Name five famous women in tech. I'll give you a second. It's difficult, isn't it? I bet some names that came to mind were Siri, Alexa, Cortana, maybe Ruby or Alice if you know programming, or Anita Sarkeesian if you lived through Gamergate. The thing is, you can probably, definitely, name five famous men in tech. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Sean Parker, Julian Assange, Evan Spiegel, Jack Dorsey. Oops, that's seven. Men in tech are everywhere. It's no secret that women have historically been denied access to science and technology, but how? And who was among the first? You're listening to Sift the Podcast, the podcast that sifts through history one devil at a time. I'm Liz Wilshin. This is The Rise and Fall of the Programmer, Part 1, Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer. In a steam and coal-powered Victorian era, she interpreted the world around her with aspirations of computation. Born December 10, 1815, to famed poet Lord Byron and his wife, Lady Annabel Milbank, Ada Lovelace embodied both her mother's precise flair for logic and mathematics and her father's poetic sense of wonder. Lord Byron's infamy is seemingly endless in its overindulgence. You name it, and he probably tried to eat it, drink it, or put his dick in it. He never shied away from public spectacle, and his triumphant 1812 season was how he met the distinguished Lady Milbank. A season is the aristocrat's way of saying, I'm here, please invite me to your parties. Doing otherwise would, indeed, be a disgrace upon my family's whatever coat of arms or something. Lady Milbake was fond of poetry, but not Lord Byron's debauchery and refused his first marriage proposal. Never missing a beat, Lord Byron began an affair with Lady Caroline Lamb, who famously described Byron as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. So, if you ever hear some dude in flannel with a beard as long as his lies telling you he's just that, call him out as the elfskin boar he is and walk away, girl. Lady Lamb was madly in love with Byron, and when he told her it was over at a ball, she shattered a wine glass and slashed her wrists. Don't worry, she was fine. In Byron's eternal poeticism, he called that night the time Lady Caroline performed the dagger scene. Lady Milbank decided it was God's will for her to save Byron from his antics, and she accepted his marriage proposal in 1814, marrying him the following January. Late in their first year of marriage, Ada was born, but Lady Milbank and Lord Byron split within weeks of her birth due to rumors of Lord Byron's behavior and his mental health. Lord Byron pulled a very classic fuckwad move by denying Lady Milbank a divorce, so she outfuckwadded him. Lady Milbank threatened to report his quote, sexual deviance to the authorities. Not the affair Lord Byron was having with his half-sister, that remained legal in the eyes of the law, but rather his homosexual relationships and the anal sex Lord Byron and Lady Milbank engaged in, in violation of anti-sodomy statutes. Byron granted her the divorce, leaving Lady Milbank to raise Ada Lovelace alone in Horsley Towers, where the only portrait of him was covered with a thick velvet curtain. Lady Milbank was hell-bent on purging any trace of Byron's poeticism from Ada because she thought it was the root of his insanity. Ada received intensive education with private tutoring beginning at the age of six with little variety. They focused on geography, which Ada enjoyed, arithmetic, reading, spelling, French, and music. Later, her tutors added Latin before the age of 10, geometry, and some handicrafts. 
The sessions went from 9 a.m. until tea time, and even the time when Ada was reclining was used for oral arithmetic lessons. Ada was isolated, intensely intelligent, and soon bedridden with the measles, but she remained boisterous and challenging to her tutors and mother. In the cold winter months of 1828, Ada became fascinated with flight. During this time, Ada told her mother of her interests by letter, signing them off as your affectionate carrier pigeon. She carefully examined the anatomy of birds, constructing replica wings of paper, oil silk, wire, and feathers. Ada was creating a flying machine using the most cutting-edge technology, steam power. She was meticulous in documenting her experiments, what she called The Art of Flying, in a book she published when she was 13 called Flyology. Ada also suffered from hysteria, the condition of being a mentally ill woman in a time before now. Likely inherited from her father, Ada described her hysteria as something that made her sometimes weak. She said, I am always so exceedingly terrified at nobody knows what that I can hardly help having an agitated look and manner. When she was 17, Ada debuted at her first London season in a white tulle and satin gown before the king and queen's court. That year, she went to balls and galas just as her mother and father had, walking among Britain's elite and beautiful. One of the most coveted invitations that year was to a weekly soiree held at the home of Charles Babbage, a wealthy intellectual and widower. While everyone else was rubbing elbows over canapes, Ada was magnetically pulled to Babbage's demonstration of his latest work, a small-scale model of something he called the Difference Engine. Like Ada had done years before, Babbage used steam power in his design of a mechanical calculator constructed of the finest materials and built by the most skilled laborers. Ada was fascinated. She understood its working and saw the great beauty of the invention. The Difference Engine was exceptional in its removal of human error at a time when precision was indispensable. Mathematical tables were in use all over the West by engineers, astronomers, and, most importantly, naval navigators whose lives relied on precise calculations. The Difference Engine broke equations down into simple addition, something called the method of finite differences. For that reason, it was limited in its abilities, only able to solve simple addition, subtraction, or algebraic equations like x squared minus 3x. Reading the Difference Engine meant reading in a vertical line from top to bottom. Its columns were designed to reach 7 feet in height and were made up of stacks of circular disks that rotated independently of each other by toothed gears. Each disc was engraved with numbers 0 through 9 along the outside teeth, and the higher the disc, the higher the decimal value it represented. To see a video of a replica difference engine in action, go to sifthepodcast.com. It's truly mesmerizing to watch in action. Ada wanted to know the intricacies of the difference engine, and her captivation with it continued well after Babbage's soiree. The two began a letter-writing correspondence, and soon, a friendship. Charles Babbage was an intense man who would assume Isaac Newton's former chair at Oxford. He passionately campaigned against organ grinders, and was interested in everything from archaeology to tool design and submarine navigation. Babbage demanded the finest craftspeople and materials for his difference engine, which cost about the same as two British naval ships, and was paid for by the United Kingdom. Babbage halted construction of the difference engine midway through as costs increased. His mind quickly moved on to a bigger and better design. 
Charles Babbage created schematics for what he called the analytical engine in 1837, another steam-powered calculator, this time a more exceptional engine. How? The analytical engine embodied all the logical principles of today's computers. I want you to take a moment and think about your first encounter with a computer, your first tour. Mine was with Miss Kendrick and a gaggle of other second graders on IBM desktops. I was given a sheet of paper, and printed on it was a penguin wearing sunglasses, resting its flipper on a computer monitor. The penguin and Miss Kendrick leveled with me about the differences between a computer's CPU and memory, how we as users provide computers with inputs. Charles Babbage's analytical engine possessed all of these components, well, except for the cool penguin. Its mill was like a CPU, its store like memory, and it had a punch card reader, a lot like those Scantron cards, reading inputs. The analytical engine had a dowel that would raise and lower to integrate conditions like if X then Y. The information would branch down the machine as these dowels, these conditional arms, rhythmically rose and fell. At the entry level, it had 100 variables and was 15 feet high, but the analytical engine had the potential to grow to thousands of variables in size, taking up as much space as a Gothic cathedral. Punch card inputs were among the most cutting-edge technologies in industrial Britain. The Jacquard loom was one of the first devices to implement punch cards, with its simple hole no hole, early binary, translated into complicated floral brocade weaves at the hands of unskilled workers. Ada saw jacquard looms in use for the first time when she was a child. She and her tutors went on forays into London to examine the machinery and understand the conditions of working classes. The jacquard loom, in all its simplicity, had a complex impact on society. It automated what was once skilled labor, and an anti-automation Luddite movement was ignited. The Luddites feared for a loss of handcraftsmanship and artistry. Many prominent members of the Romantic era became involved in its cause, including Ada's father, Lord Byron. These Luddites and their handicrafts inspired folks like Frank Lloyd Wright, who we discuss more in episode 9. Ada remained fascinated by the punch cards, nevertheless, and by the working classes. Her mother, Lady Milbank, concerned herself with philanthropic causes after separating from Lord Byron. Lady Milbank was energetic, yet disciplined, innovative, yet calculated. Lady Milbank was ready to save someone, she just didn't know who. She began where many aristocrats did, in prison reform. The British prison system was in shambles, throwing anyone into prison at the word of creditors. Then she moved on to the British cooperative movement. To understand the cooperative movement, we have to understand working classes through the eyes of philanthropic aristocrats. Philanthropy has always been a way for elite members of society to pass time, which Lady Milbank had in spades, and leave an enduring impression on the land through donations like the St. Cross Hospital bequeathed during the medieval period. They saw new types of families develop during the Industrial Revolution. People moved from farms to urban centers, lived in tenement blocks. Men and women shifted to unskilled labor in dangerous, automated workplaces, working up to 16 hours a day. Women became the reproducers, not only of the next workforce, but whatever culture their children may represent, including the family's wealth, beliefs, and most importantly to Lady Milbank, education. Its mission was to divide bulk goods among people and give them shares into whatever the co-op may have been, a business, credit union, or school. 
These stores are how we ended up with the co-op grocery stores we know today with their signature bulk bins. Lady Milbank decided to mix together a few concepts and created a school-grocery store hybrid to get children into the door as their mothers were getting daily rations. Education was always Lady Milbank's focus, however, from Ada to working-class school children. The co-op's aims were, in no particular order, to teach morals, to avoid the evils of the public schools, to promote social equality, to foster useful education and religious preoccupations, and to produce good citizens. Ada and other aristocratic children, on the other hand, were of a superior class, to be educated by tutors and governesses. Philanthropists never truly intended to level the playing field, so to speak, and treated the working classes as, quote, problem poor throughout all their work. By 1835, Ada married William King, a promising aristocrat ten years older than her who became Earl of Lovelace in a matter of years. That made Ada Lady Lovelace. The two quickly had three children whose caretaking and educations were relegated to their grandmother, Lady Milbank. Ada was relegated to occupy her time managing the Lovelace homes and begrudgingly playing the harp. She wrote to Babbage one day, I am, at present, a condemned slave to my harp. She occupied her time playing the latest Vogue game, Solitaire. This was not what you and I know today as the digital card game with pixelated customized card deck designs of beaches, a haunted castle, or clownfish. This solitaire was a board game. It had 33 holes topped with 32 pegs, the player removed by jumping the pegs like checkered pieces, until only one peg was left over. Of course, to Ada, this was not just a game, it was a problem. And mathematics has solutions to problems. She described the game to her friend Charles Babbage in a letter. I have done it by trying and can now do it at any time, but what I want to know is if the problem admits of being put into a mathematical formula and solved. There must be a definite principle, a compound I imagine of numerical and geometrical properties on which the solution depends and which can be put into symbolic language. In so many words, Ada was describing an algorithm. Universities at the time did not admit women, and one of Ada's own tutors was rigidly against educating women, saying, The very great tensions of minds, which they require, is beyond the strength of a woman's physical power of application. When it came to Ada, though, he was all, hashtag not all women about it, saying that Ada has unquestionably as much power as would require all the strength of a man's constitution. Okay. As Ada's mind ran circles and spheres around mathematical principles, Babbage's analytical engine sat within his own mind, equally unattainable. Babbage traveled to Italy, which he described as the country of Archimedes and Galileo, for his first and only presentation of the analytical engine. In the audience was Italy's future prime minister, Luigi Federico Menebra. Menebra thought the engine would be a smash hit in Europe's philosophical circles, so he wrote a report as the analytical engine's introduction. Babbage asked Ada to translate the report and enthusiastically encouraged Ada to add her own thoughts. Ada toiled over the translation for nine months. Her translator's notes ended up twice as long as Minerva's report. 
Ada corrected errors within the report without Minebra or Babbage's knowledge, on the basis of her own knowledge of the analytical engine. Yes, Charles Babbage wrote the first program demonstrating the analytical engine's functioning, but Ada wrote something else entirely. Ada was a woman whose education cultivated within her the skill of observation through nature and city walks and industrial jacquard factories, and a life where women are not asked what or even if they think. What Ada observed was a world living and breathing numbers. Ada saw that the analytical engine could endlessly manipulate this number world. She saw the analytical engine might act upon other things besides numbers. Ada's notes laid out a program to mechanically input a calculation for Bernoulli numbers, which are a lengthy and complex equation that could then be used to generate other equations, formulas, and functions. She said, in studying the action of the analytical engine, we find it would include all subjects in the universe. She saw that it could be used to scientifically compose music, and even during the 19th century, Ada was aware of people's fears of an automation takeover. In her attempts to quell those fears, she stated that the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. In the time it took Ada to write her translator's notes, Charles Babbage expressed his own regret for not listening to her insight sooner. This was not the first time Babbage's inflexibility would harm him professionally. That same year, Charles Babbage was courting the British government to commission the construction of his prized analytical engine, but they refused his requests. Babbage's poor execution of the difference engine and obstinance during negotiations was unimpressive to the conservative government. He refused to allow Ada to negotiate on his behalf, and attempted to editorialize her notes to include criticism of the government for failing to fund the machine. Ada was not deterred, and demanded the analytical engine's construction. I have on my mind most strongly the impression that heaven has allotted me some particular intellectual-moral mission to perform, she said, but as a woman she couldn't access her family's wealth. By 1843, Ada had an idea of how to get the money. Betting at the horse races. She was determined to use her mathematical mastery to beat the odds and win enough to pay for the analytical engine, perhaps, though there is no record of her motivations. Ada and her betting ring of gentlemen included her lover, John Croft, and Florence Nightingale's father. By spring of 1851, Ada had lost thousands and soon fell ill. The next year, Ada was bedridden. She had developed uterine cancer. A cocktail of opium and cannabis barely controlled her pain over a year. In 1852, Ada confessed her debts to her mother. That same year, she made a confession to her husband who stormed out of the room, never to speak to Ada again. No one knows what she said to William on that day. Ada Lovelace died November 27, 1852, at the age of 36. Just before her death, she made only one request, that she be buried next to her father, Lord Byron. She and Lord Byron are buried side by side in the Church of St. Mary Magdalene in York, England. Before Byron's own death, he wrote longingly of Ada in one of his most famous poems. Is thy face like thy mother's, my fair child? Ada, sole daughter of my house and heart. When last I saw thy young blue eyes, they smiled. And then we parted. Not now as we part, but with a hope. 